As we all know, every action has an equal and opposite reaction. The reaction, however, is not necessarily equal in time or unity. It often spreads over time with serial impacts. In this edition of Radio Curious, we focus on the treatment of workers in the automobile industry in the United States beginning in the early years of the 20th century. The story is portrayed in Brothers on the Line, a film about Walter, Ray, and Victor Ruther, three brothers from West Virginia who organized the United Auto Workers Union beginning in the 1920s. With access to the National Archives, the Wayne State University Labor History Library, and family records, Sasha Ruther, Victor's grandson, directed the film. It chronicles the working conditions and the successful strikes at the big three auto plants in Michigan, the political power of the United Auto Workers Union, and its involvement in the civil rights movement. It also explains why Detroit became the richest city in the United States. Sasha Ruther and I visited by phone from his office in New York City on May 7, 2012. We began when I asked him, what happened once the automobile became a useful, if not a necessary tool of life? Once the automobile proved to be uh, essential to transportation and obviously speeding transportation in the United States, um, it became a massive industry uh, and the mass production of it. Henry Ford, as I mentioned, mastered it and, of course, uh, led to an explosion of jobs. In fact, um, not just for uh, I mean, it brought in workers from all over the globe. Uh, there were workers that, um, not only African-American workers that moved up from the South, but there were tons of European workers that um, exploded Detroit itself. It became probably one of the largest cities at that time. Um, and, and so I think that obviously it became the largest in- industry, I think, in the world at one time. And therefore, there were becoming labor concerns. It was, you know, from management side, how fast can we begin to churn out these cars? They're in such high demand. And there was the push for faster, faster, longer hours, working over the weekends. So, of course, it began to have major wear and tear on, on these workers and their families. A comment is made in the movie about the workers checking in for work, and then the owners of the factories treat them as if uh, they're almost slaves or indentured for the period of time that they're working. So it, it looks to me like the movie portrays a relationship of owners versus workers, two different ulterior motives or goals. Uh, yeah, I would say that. I mean, I think that eventually those those goals would fuse a little bit more, and they began to be a bit more on the same page as labor standards took hold, and and there was you know an auto union that could represent the workers. But yes, I think at the beginning of our story, um, it certainly is a a one versus the other. Um, you know, one management being wanted to produce their products the way they saw fit, and they they felt that look, you know, we're paying the best. Um, 
you know, we're giving you the best employment in the industry, the highest wages, you know, you essentially, you should listen to us and, you know, you should be comfortable with what we're giving you somewhat of a, with Henry Ford, very a paternal relationship. Um, he was the, the father of his workers, so to speak. But I think then, you know, the industry became so large that some of those managers became somewhat blinded by the fact that the workers really couldn't work this way. Um, there was, there were many injuries and it was just a, a terrible livelihood. They, they really couldn't live their lives in the way that they wanted to and it affected their families. Um, so then eventually as the labor movement took hold and were able to win their rights, they, they started to get a little bit more on the same page. I think management realized that they had to break away from the old status quo and respect the workers and there was greater dignity in the workplace. So I think that's, that's the short of it. When you talk about winning their rights, that took approximately 30 years before there was the first uh, agreement signed in February of 1937. Right, that's correct. What happened in those first 25 to 30 years in the auto industry? Well, I mean, I think that if we're speaking about... um Obviously, I think workers would begin to realize right away how difficult it was to to work on the production line. Um, you know, just just the difficult standards in general, trying to keep up that speed up. But in order to create a, a unified movement or to have a voice, it couldn't just be one worker that stood up and said, you know, we can't take it anymore. It took a long time for workers to feel that. First of all, they had the right to speak up to management who was paying them and putting food on their table. Um, management was, was not so happy with the idea of an outside group telling them how to run their business. So it took a long time to, to get up the momentum and I think just, just the belief that workers could organize together um, you know, and then w- essentially winning their rights by demanding them. I mean, they, they, that's, that's why the sit-down movement happened where workers began to say they weren't taking over the means of production, but they said, you know, we can't take it anymore. Please, you have to listen to us and allow us to be recognized as you know, an, an organized group to protect worker rights. We're not trying to crush or squeeze an industry or demand too much. We just need to be respected. So it took, you know, it took those sort of 25, 30 years to establish a United Auto Workers. And that was a full generation. So let's talk for a minute about what the it that you refer to is, the working conditions, the hours, uh, the dangers, the efforts. The great thing about my great uncle Walter is that he uh, he did many oral histories in his life, and those appear in the film. And he speaks on when he was first hired at the Ford Motor Company. You know, sometimes there were 21-hour days. I mean, he would work double shifts, where that's pretty much, you know, a full basically 24 hours in a day. So he would work almost consistently through that day. Um, there was certainly, there's often said in the industry that not just the United Auto Workers, but unions created the weekend because they were really working six hours, sometimes six days, sometimes seven days a week. Um, so these were the things that needed to be scaled back. This is what the workers were demanding that, you know, there, there were horrific stories of, um, you know, not being able to take bathroom breaks, that they were, you know, they had to stay on that production line and churning out those parts and no one could leave. They were essentially, there's a quote in the film that says they were almost chained to the production line. So these were, uh, you know, these were very uh, drastic measures to make sure production came out fast. So, you know, inevitably something had to change. The sit-down strike that you show in the film, Brothers on the Line, where the workers welded the gates closed until there could be an agreement. Can you tell us a little bit about that? 
sure. Um, this was, uh, I think, began um, in December of 36 and lasted with a 44-day sit-down um, at one of the General Motors plants in Flint. And yes, exactly. There was um, a moment where, I mean, it basically was, it was, obviously, there was some forethought uh, into, I mean, there was some initial setup in planning a potential sit-down. But I think when the moment happened, it really was not a planned moment. I think there were a few workers on the line that felt this was our time. There was a change in shift, and it was a moment where they could see, uh, you know, a potential in. And yes, they, they essentially just stopped working. And, um, you know, they were able to, they noticed that the foreman and some other uh, managers were in a certain area uh, of the plant at that time, and they were able to close them off and literally lock the doors and locked out management. And they sat down on the job. Um, and, you know, management obviously was not very pleased with this and did what they could initially to bring in a police force to kind of either drive them out. They couldn't get back in the plants, but um, they would harass some of the picket line, people on the picket line outside and their wives who were outside, they would harass them to try to get the workers to, to give up and come out. They, the police and management turned off the heat. Um, they made sure there was no water. Uh, they would try to limit the food that would come in. Although some of the, the women um, and the other workers and union organizers on the outside did figure out a way to bring in food and water to the workers on the inside. So it really was, it was a, a very dramatic standoff. It was a battle against, you know, saying that we, we truly cannot survive in this industry. And, you know, we have to, we will, we will sit down here as long as it takes um, for you to recognize us. And, you know, as the story goes, slowly management started to come to the table a little bit more when their tactics of driving the workers out didn't work. And um, the governor of Michigan had to essentially step in to make sure he called the National Guard to make sure there wasn't violence in the street uh, and essentially forced management to come to the table and said, look, this is we can't have this uh, dramatic international news story on our hands. There will be violence. They, they, the workers cannot stay in like this. There needs to be something done. Um, and management eventually came to the table. In this edition of Radio Curious, we're visiting with Sasha Ruther, the director and filmmaker of the film Brothers on the Line, the story of Walter, Roy, and Victor Ruther. Sasha Ruther is the grandson of Victor Ruther. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Sasha, an interesting story in the film is revealed when your great uncle and your father and brother began the organization at the Ford plant on River Road. And and the dimensions of the Ford plant are astonishing to me. 2,000 acres of land, the largest concentration of machinery in the world at that time. What the film characterizes is a private army of approximately 5,000 people called the Ford Service Department. To me, that's astonishing that was going on in the late 1930s and 1940. General Motors was, uh, I think, the largest corporation in the world during that time. But um, I think Henry Ford likely had the most plants and really hired the most people. So I think his uh, connection to a labor union, he had the most to lose. I think he he felt the most paternalistic about his company. Um, I think at the Ford River Rouge plant that you mentioned um, in Detroit, I think he was hiring 100,000 workers or something, something incredibly massive. I mean, he was probably the largest employer in Detroit. Um, So, yeah, he, he felt... 
very much at odds with the, the potential that a union could come in and tell him how to run his shop. So yes, he, he created a, a managed management division known as the service department, which uh, really was run by some of his former bodyguards, um, other imposing or tough guy personalities that were not necessarily just there to push around workers. It wasn't really that. They were there to run a tight ship. But when they saw union buttons or when they saw workers gathering in groups to discuss things, they, you know, they, they poked their head in and quickly tried to separate the groups and did what they could to, to keep the union out. Um, so I think that what the union saw after they won their rights at General Motors and then Chrysler, Ford was, you know, the last Citadel. They, they were the one that, you know, took the most organizing strategy. It was very difficult to have a sit to try to do a sit down in a Ford plant because there were these sort of hidden spies all around, especially in the in the Ford of Rouge. So their tactic to break them um, ended up becoming public exposure. I, I think in the sense that they couldn't lock down a plant from the inside. So they. I don't want to say that they staged, but they they were able to bring to the surface some of the devious tactics that the service department uh, service department um, would use against union organizers. Um, and specifically, that moment to mention there was a, a, an incident known as the Battle of the Overpass. There was Walter and some of the top UAW leaders had decided that in order to expose these tactics of the Ford Service Department, they they would create um, a leafleting campaign in front of the River Rouge where the service department men would always hang out and they would look for any possibility there would be union organizing. They would always, you know, squash it out quickly. And so Walter Ruther and the other organizers invited press and they said, you know, well, we're going to walk up there and do what we usually do and see what happens. And sure enough, there is a public overpass. That was the interesting about it. This was not Ford Motor private property. There's a public overpass um, in the entrance to the River Rouge plant that workers would use to cross over um, a sort of uh, highway uh, in order to get to the Rouge plant. And Walter Ruther was handing out leaflets on that public roadway. And sure enough, the Ford servicemen came up, um, said some choice words, and had at it with these organizers. And there was a very brutal beating of Walter um, Richard Frankenstein, who was another top UAW organizer at that time. And the press was there to capture those moments. Um, one of the, the, the photographers actually managed to slip away. We talk about this in the film, you know, quickly from the servicemen. Of course, the servicemen were not happy that there was press there and they, you know, gave some harassment to them as well. But there was one photographer that managed to get away and got his photos first in the Detroit news. And then they spread like wildfire nationally exposing an incident that, you know, became part of UAW history, the Battle of the Overpass, when we, when we the workers, exposed, um, you know, what the service department was doing to us. We were legally allowed to pass out any kind of leaflets on that public property, and they, they came in there and, and pursued this violence on us. And they were able to use that as an organizing tactic. The public came on the UAW side, and, and I think really it was, there was at least something to discuss. It took several years after that before Henry Ford and the Ford Motor Company finally gave in to the organizers and, and recognized the UAW. But that was a key moment that all historians look at saying this was a tactic that the UAW used. They couldn't get in on the inside, so they decided to sort of create a public incident on the outside.
The strike at the Ford Motor Company was settled in May of 1941, and in the film, it's said that the relations between labor and management were forever changed as a result of that settlement. How would you characterize those changes? I mean, forever changed in the sense that, you know, there were some common sense you know, uh, benefits that happened at that point. I mean, we're not talking about pensions and larger health care benefits at this time quite yet. But standards, as you would think about, standards that, you know, they would limit the working hours or potentially they would, you know, if they couldn't limit them, you'd get overtime pay if you went over eight hours. Um, you know, limit the time you'd actually work on a weekend. Uh, women would be par- paid equally to men. I mean, some of these standards, if they were doing the exact same work, and doing it at the same pace, why shouldn't they be paid the same way? Um, you know, standardizing lunch breaks and bathroom breaks and, and things that just seem so obvious um, in any kind of industry today. Uh, these weren't happening before that time. Uh, so I think changed forever in the sense that, you know, non-organized, non-unionized companies began to come into the same fold here, um, you know, because th- these were things that union members were appreciating and became sort of standardized across most industries. Let's go to the international expansion. The movie says that your grandfather, Victor Ruther, was in charge of international affairs uh, for the Union. What did that entail? Initially, um, in the 1950s, early 1950s, when he became the international director of the Union, uh, they, there were concerns, I think, that the Union movement in general, the UAW was part of um, the CIO, the Congress of Industrial Organizations. And the CIO represented several other unions also. That was a federation that represented production workers in general. And I think that my grandfather becoming the international director of the UAW, being affiliated with the CIO, he represented both of those groups overseas. And the idea was that the CIO felt that uh, you know, workers should be protected all over the world. We should be looking broadly in the sense that if workers' rights aren't protected overseas, there will be... Um, you know, there there is a great possibility that our American jobs that we fought so hard for potentially could disappear overseas. There will be markets where workers are abused, um, taken advantage of, can produce very similar products, maybe even could produce automobiles someday. Of course, that came true 100%. Um, so in, in essence, that was, I think, the initial idea behind the CIO was that it was always much bigger than an American auto industry. This was fighting for labor's rights in general, uh, and then international labor's rights in general. So my grandfather began on that journey as an international representative traveling from city to city internationally, looking at workers' rights there, reporting back, saying, you know, here's some potential disturbing issues and, and so forth. But then he began to track what was happening in the international auto industry. When there was a manufacturer of autos, uh, when it was becoming booming in Japan and in Germany, um, you know, he could see that there was the potential that we would get imports here, which we did, um, how to be just to, to try to be ahead of the ball on that at all times, um, what that meant for the American industry here. If those autos were going to ship here, would they eventually be produced here, which they were? What would that mean for unionized uh, workers? That kind of thing. So essentially those were, those were the responsibilities of my grandfather. 
We don't have time in this visit on Radio Curious to discuss your families uh, and the union's involvement in the civil rights activities of the early 1960s and the uh, Civil Rights Act of 1964 and 65, and the other history that is presented in graphics in your movie, Brothers on the Line. That leads me to the question, where did you get access to all of this rich portion uh, the longitudinal history of automobile development in the United States. You know, it's it's really interesting. Um, the I'm so lucky and fortunate that uh, well, first to grow up in this family, so I have the intimate knowledge from from family history and family photos and things. But the the footage and materials that you're speaking of, it, there were two key places. Uh, the first key is that Henry Ford was, you know, among his many geniuses, he actually was documenting himself. He had a, a, a film section in the Ford Motor Department that would document the production of automobiles. He really wanted to document creating the Model A, the Model T, how it was done, a whole production assembly line. So uh, probably unbeknownst to him, he was also documenting uh, a bubbling organizing union movement. I mean, if cameras are rolling all the time, you began to see union organizers outside of the plants and things like that as well. So that Henry Ford collection of films exists at the National Archives, and it's for public use, and it took a long time to research, but we pulled some magnificent films from that. The other half, um, you know, aside from licensing some footage from CBS and the typical news footage that you would see in the film, the most unique and I think the most stunning uh, of the archival that we found is United Auto Workers films directly. They they also had the they also had the foresight to think that, um, you know, I think even in the late 1920s, early 30 early 30s, they were concerned that the media might not be telling the union story correctly and they wanted to get news out to their workers. So they, the UAW created their own news organization, which meant actual 16-millimeter cameramen that were documenting what the movement was doing on the picket line, marches, even later on, marches with Dr. Martin Luther King when the UAW felt that it was important to support the civil rights movement, meeting with Senator, well, at first Senator Jack Kennedy and then President Kennedy. So the UAW really was, was very smart in the sense of thinking that, you know, we have to tell our own story. And that, that access to that footage, thankfully, because I'm a family member, that, that lives at Wayne State University in Detroit, that Wayne State has a labor archive known as the Walter Ruther uh, Archive of Labor and Urban Affairs, I think I believe it's called, and that is the largest labor archive in the country. And the, first of all, the resources there are unparalleled, and it's more than just the UAW collection. It's about 20 different unions um, collections from all across the country that now live there. Fantastic photos, unbelievable films, uh, and they, the staff there really opened up their doors to me. And, and they're really actually very welcoming to all archivists and anyone that wants to do um, film work there or research there. So I was just blessed to be to have a team of, of archivists and educators behind me saying, look, you're a Ruther family member. No one has done a story, a film story of this magnitude before. And to have the family do it just means so much to us. So they, they really were just you know, so incredibly helpful. Sasha Ruther, maker of the film Brothers on the Line, grandson of Victor Ruther and grandnephew of Walter Ruther and Rory Ruther, I want to thank you for being with us on Radio Curious. And before we close, I'd like to ask you a couple of questions about you. Sure. Is there a eureka or an aha moment that occurred in your life that you could share with us? Sure. You know, I think it's actually, it's it's tied to this greater film that I made in general. There was, 
My grandfather uh, lived until he was 92 years old and passed away in 2004. And I was lucky enough to do a series of interviews with him when I was still in film school in 1998. But I did it in the sense that I wanted to capture his great stories, but not really knowing if I would do a film someday. I just wanted to have his, his memories captured on video. So I had that. But in 2004, when my grandfather passed away, uh, there was a memorial in Washington, D.C., and I, my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife, Sonia, was with me down in Washington. And attending this memorial, I was sitting there, and such amazing dignitaries came to pay their respects to, to my grandfather. And there was, uh, I believe Senator Kennedy was there, civil rights leaders, many different union leaders, the, the current um, and previous presidents of the UAW were there. And so my, my wife leaned over to me, or I'm sorry, my, she's my wife now, Sonia, leaned over and said, Sasha, I know that you've had interest in, in potentially doing a story about your family someday, but I have to tell you, look around this room, you know, they're getting kind of up there in age. So if you'd like to do a film, I think you should look around and see who's here now and, and think about maybe pursuing this sooner than later. Because she said, I, you know, I'm with you. If, if you feel that this is something you want to pursue, you should start thinking about it. And a light bulb went off because as soon as she said that, and this is probably a Eureka moment for both of us, but a light bulb went off in my head and I saw that room as the film unfolding in front of me. It was an amazing moment for me because I saw these interesting characters and I was shaking their hands and hearing their stories and I felt my grandfather and elders' lives are right there in this room. And I saw the film almost all the way through the ending at that moment. My, it was really sort of flash-forwarding for me. So that was definitely a moment where the light bulb went off. Um, you know, not long after that, uh, my girlfriend and I started writing some notes, and I really pushed forward on making this film. And it definitely has, the film itself has changed my life. So that was a moment for sure that I was just, a light bulb went off and said, I have to make this happen. Now that you've made the film and it's available for viewing, what would you like to do with the rest of your One Precious Life? Uh, I would like to pursue my own form of activism. It's in my blood. The, the Ruther legacy being labor activists in general, they, they, were, they were social justice activists. They believed fighting for their neighbor um, was the most noble thing you could do in life. Uh, if they were oppressed or if they needed help, that's what you'd do. So my form of activism, while I've not been deeply involved in labor, I come from a media background. I'm a filmmaker, I'm a storyteller, and I want to bring focus and, and bring to the world more community stories. If I can tell a story through film or in TV or in a commercial, I, I, you know, I'm not just limited to documentary, but I feel these are very heroic stories that are often forgotten. So my form of activism would be through this kind of education. I feel that I'd love to bring exposure to in, important stories that have slipped through the cracks, and that's how I can sort of further the Ruther legacy. And finally, Sasha Ruther, is there a book that you could recommend to our listeners, or perhaps a film? I would actually recommend a book. The, the book that I would recommend is by a professor, Kevin Boyle, and the name of the book is The UAW and the Heyday of American Liberalism. Kevin Boyle makes it very accessible, this labor history, and American history in general. And he touches on a lot of the beats that we do in the film, but it's a fascinating look at how the UAW really contributed so deeply to creating the middle class and all of these social movements that grew out of what was initially a workers' movement and really you know, boosted our economy and all the things that I mentioned in the film. Sasha Ruther, thank you very much for being with us on Radio Curious. Thank you. It was my great pleasure. Mm -hmm. 
Sasha Ruther is the director of Brothers on the Line, a film of the role of labor in the American auto industry. The book that Sasha Ruther recommends is The United Auto Workers and the Heyday of American Liberalism, 1945 to 1968, by Kevin Boyle. Curious has over 600 archive editions on our website, radiocurious.org, with new editions published regularly. You may stream, download, subscribe to our podcast service, and share them as you wish. They're all free. We appreciate your thoughts, ideas, and comments about our programs and enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The phone is 707-462-6541. And the address is 280 North Oak Street, Ukiah, U-K-I-A-H, California, 95482. Christina Onestead and Yuko Kodama are the assistant producers. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.